Hey everybody, welcome to the Motion Church Weekly Podcast. This set of podcasts is going to be our messages from our time together as a church on Saturdays. And so it will be um, messages shared by either me or uh, Pastor Shannon. And so we hope you enjoy these and uh, look forward to those discussions coming later in the weeks um, on these messages. Focus on the application, but these are going to be the message audio from our time on Saturday, so we hope these are an encouragement to you. Enjoy the podcast. So here we go. We are, well, technically now wrapping up John chapter 7 and really going into 8, but we've got an interesting uh, situation here with the passage that we're going to be looking at today. Um, Because if you've got got an ESV Bible, and that's kind of the main one that we've been using, as you come up to... John 7, uh, verse 53, you actually see it's kind of there with chapter 8, and there's a note that comes right before it that says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 8.11. And then there's a little parenthetical kind of thing surrounding, or brackets surrounding this portion of Scripture, And then it even has a little footnote there that states that this passage is placed in some manuscripts in different parts of Scripture, uh, or it's, it's missing from the section altogether. And, and so, really, we're coming, we're coming to a, a part in the Gospel of John that we're going to kind of take a little bit of a, a side route with our study of Scripture, because... This kind of brings up a, a controversial topic in church circles. And quite honestly, it's a shame that it's controversial because it shouldn't be. When, when you really look at all of the evidence and you look at it with an objective viewpoint, um, there should be no controversy at, at all. Um, and so... Before we really look at this section of the Bible narrative here, I want us to take a look at what does this mean? What does this get at? What are we to make of this statement here where it says the earliest manuscripts do not include this section of Scripture? Um, What are we to make of this? Uh, Some Bibles don't have, some translations don't have that note in in there. Um, So is one more correct than the other. And and what this does is this falls into the the realm of what is known as textual criticism. Textual criticism. There's your big scholarly word or phrase for for the week. Textual criticism. And so I wanted to take a moment and talk about what uh, textual criticism is and why even just the average Joe in the church should know about this subject because at some point in time, even if you weren't digging into a lot of books at all, you're going to come across an issue like this because this isn't the only section of scripture that has the controversial situation to it. So um, let's take a look at this on what textual criticism is. Uh, Before I jump into it, I just wanted to share a resource uh, with you all, and I'm going to share the name and the, the author's uh, name on it so that those who may listen through the uh, podcast can get the info uh, as well. There's a book titled New Testament Textual Criticism, A Concise Guide. So it's New Testament Textual Criticism, A Concise Guide, and the author's name is David Allen Black. David Allen Black. And it really is. It's a nice beginner's guide to textual criticism. And if you want to look a little bit further into this, because I don't have the time to do an extensive study of that book, um, but that's a great resource. And I've got several others if you really want to go even, even further into it. So... In our culture, do we like the word criticism? Not really. No, it's not. It's not a uh, a popular word, right? When we hear the word criticism, 
what's the first thing we think of? Critical analysis that's kind of... No, come on. The average street person doesn't think, oh, you're critically analyzing what I'm doing. No, what is... When we hear the word criticism... Right, yeah, people are like, why are you hating on me? Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, what's the deal? Why, what are you hating on me for, right? That's what we think of the, the average Joe in our culture when we hear the word criticism. The problem, though, is when it comes to Scripture, rejecting this word criticism, especially textual criticism, is a very dangerous game. Because it's not a very smart approach to an ancient document. Because if you're not critical of this document, you're just going to take it at face value, not knowing anything, and you're going to misinterpret a whole slew of things. And that's why we've got a whole bunch of messed up doctrine and messed up beliefs and Christians going off doing wackadoo type of things is because they're not critical of what they're doing. So now, I thought it'd be cool because of our, our culture. We hear the word criticism. We think of it in a, in a negative view. And it was interesting when I did a search for the definition. Simply, you know, go to Google. What does criticism mean? Define criticism. The first definition is the expression of disapproval of someone or something based on perceived faults or mistakes. It's the why you hate on me. That's the first definition. But it's interesting, if you were to look at the history of that word, it wasn't always the case. You, you go further back in time and look at the definition of the word, the second definition here is really the, was the primary definition, and that is the analysis and judgment of the merits and faults of a literary or artistic work. In other words, it's an analysis of what you're reading, what you're seeing, Think of, in our modern day time frame, a movie critic, right? Does a movie critic just always hate on a film? No. no. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. A lot of people don't like movie critics, but, you know, uh, and disagree with them. But no, they're giving an analysis based on merits and faults of the work. And really, that's what textual criticism is. It's taking... People so, criticize the movie critics. Yeah, right. See, and that's the funny thing is what it really boils down to, the way we hear the word criticism, is we don't like criticism about us. You know, and, and in our culture, we try and soften the blow, right? Because we created we created constructive criticism, you know, where you only say good things. Well, that's really not criticism, because if I messed up, then how am I supposed to learn if everybody's just giving me a blue ribbon and saying what I did was great? I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing and thus making the same mistakes. I, I had a great design teacher, and I've shared about him before. When I was in design school, he was the greatest critic of all, and I am so thankful for it because we had like a crash course drawing class that he led, and you had an assignment you had to do every week, a particular drawing or painting or what have you, and when you first came into the classroom, the first thing you did was you pinned your drawing from the week up on the board. And then he would walk through by himself and look at everything, and then he would come back and picture by picture tear it apart from top to bottom. And it was amazing because you would see him walk through, and he would come across something, stop, and just start laughing. Or just shake his head. And then he would go through, and then he'd start explaining why he was laughing, or why he, and he, there was times he was brutal. But honestly, if you're listening to what he was saying, he was really pointing out the, the faults and, and the things that needed to be changed. And the reason why he was brutal, and he shared it with the class, is if we were to go off from graduation day and go to an ad agency, the creative director, you may have 30 minutes because the client is coming in at last minute and they want to see something. And you've got 30 minutes to perform well. And he's not going to put up with little, eh, I just don't know if I can do it. You know, no, it was serious work. You know, I think about boot camp. Okay. They tore you down but it was for a purpose. 
is to reform you into the person they you needed to be. And and so criticism, I, what I what I'm trying to get at here is criticism is not not a bad thing, and it's not something that we should seek to soften the blow of. So how does this all tie in with textual criticism? Well, we need to understand the goal of textual criticism. And so the goal of textual criticism, and this is according to the book I just shared with you all uh, from David Allen Black. He says, the goal of textual criticism is to recover the original text of the New Testament from the available evidence. All right, to recover the original text of the New Testament from the available evidence. So why is that important? Well, two reasons. Number one, and this is David Allen Black. He's continuing in the book. He says, none of the original manuscripts, what's often called the autographs, those are the letters that Paul actually wrote. That is the, the gospels that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John actually wrote. The actual document they themselves penned, the autographs. None of those of the New Testament have survived. There's none of them out there. You cannot go to a museum, you cannot go to a university, you cannot go to a person's private collection and find the original letter Paul wrote. They no longer exist. And then you take all of the New Testament documents that are out there in antiquity. There's over 5,000 of them. And he says there's numerous mistakes in the extant copies, the copies that do exist of the New Testament. And that is a correct word, mistakes. There's that word, ah, we like to go, no. Bible passages, Bible manuscripts don't have mistakes in them. But guess what? Even our modern day Bibles have mistakes in them. I've shared before the King James study Bible that I bought once that all the R's and the word more were missing. So everywhere it was mo this, mo that. Okay, well guess what? That's a mistake. That's the person the, it was from the South. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of the joke I used when I was when I was uh, teaching and preaching from it. But no, and and when you go back and you look at all of these these documents, there are there are mistakes through it. And and there's there's documents from different time frames, there's partial documents, um, there's documents with all sorts of notes through them, and, and they come from different regions. And so the, the textual critic is what they're doing is taking the documents we do have and going through them and studying them and looking at them and comparing them and, and taking what they understand of, of uh, Old Greek and, and all of these things and try and get back to the original autographs as best as they possibly could. And the closer we get to that, the better idea we have that now we know more exactly of what the original first century believers believed, read, and wrote. And so when it comes to this whole process, as it pertains to this passage right here, is there's three main views. And I'm talking about three main views of this passage, John 7:53 to 8.11. The first one is, this is not found in any of the earliest documents, therefore there's no point in talking about it. Plain and simple. There's some scholars out there said, listen, I'm, I'm doing a commentary of John, I'm studying John, all the earliest documents don't have it in it, I'm not even going to waste my time. And they go on. That's one viewpoint. Um, another viewpoint on the other extreme is it's in my Bible, Therefore, God meant it to be there, so all other versions are wrong. Mine is holy writ, and if you don't like it, then you're a heathen. Okay, that's the other side of the spectrum. But then there is a third, and, and a, lot of, a lot of scholars and everything lead down this road, and it's that the evidence points to it not being in the earlier manuscripts. But there is good evidence that it was a known story that was circulated at the time. So even though it may not have actually been in the original gospel that John wrote, it may very well have been a story that was circulated. So it's here. We might as well take a look at it. And so those are the three 
main viewpoints. And if you want to know um, my thoughts, I'm going to go a little bit deeper on it, but just kind of kicking off, I, I'm more of number three, okay, that no, it's not in the earlier documents. I don't consider it to be really a part of John. And you're going to see as I share some things about it that it really doesn't fit where it's at. And it's kind of an odd story in the midst of what we're looking at between chapter 7 and 8. Um, but there, I think there is reason to go ahead and look at the story. I don't think the story is fake. I don't think the story is non-biblical either. Um, but I'll go a little bit more into that. I want to share some some data. There There is a one scholar, he writes some commentaries and other books and, and everything, and he's got a great commentary on John. And I thought his, his, his thoughts that I'm sharing here um, kind of fit along with the what I feel um, is that kind of middle road where, you know, we're not going to reject it, but it's not part of John either, but it's here. So we're going to look at the, the story. Here's why he says that it shouldn't be a part of John. Uh, and, and these are not everything. These are kind of the highlights. And I don't want to bore you guys with too much info, but I can definitely lead you where you need to go should you want to do a deeper study of this. So he says these verses, John 7, 53 to 8, 11, uh, are present in most medieval Greek minuscule, minuscule manuscripts. In other words, these are the, the manuscripts from what we consider the Middle Ages, the medieval time period. This is later in the textual time frame. But he says they're absent from virtually all early Greek manuscripts that have come down to us. So as it, the note in our ESV Bible say, all the earlier manuscripts, like prior to 9th century, didn't have this portion in the Gospel of John. You're not going to find it in this portion of the Gospel of John. He said there is a notable exception, a document known as Western D, um, but it's also independent in a lot of different things. In other words, this particular old document has all sorts of different things that none of the other documents have. So with that in mind, it kind of lends itself to, it's probably kind of off on its own little territory and not one of the major points of proof. Um, he goes on to say, this portion of John is also missing from the earliest forms of the Syriac, the Coptic. Everybody know what the Syriac Gospels were, the area that would come from? Syriac. Hey! Chop it up. Yeah, from the Syria area. That's where the church in Antioch was located. So documents that would come from that area. Coptic. Anybody know Coptic? I see shaking of heads and puzzlement. Egyptian. There's still, there's still a Coptic church over in Egypt. It's being persecuted heavy, big time, um, by Islam over there. Uh, and so the Syriac uh, copies of the Gospels, the Coptic Gospels, many of the old Latin. We know where that comes from, right? Latvia. Latvia. <laughs> old Georgian, okay? Not the state Georgia, you know? And Armenian. So all of these manuscripts that started to be copied in, in Italy, in, in Georgia, Armenia, Syria, Egypt, all of these that are coming after the, the early 1st, 2nd century of the church, none of those have this portion in the Gospel of John. Um, one of the biggest points of evidence is, is D.A. Carson here says, all the early church fathers omit this narrative. In, in commenting on John, they pass immediately from 752 to 812. Now, who are the church fathers? These are all the guys that came from the biblical figures. These are the guys that, that trained under people who trained under Timothy, John, Paul, Peter. These are the guys from the, the second century church and on that started to set the church into its structural direction that we know. These guys wrote extensively on the New Testament scriptures and the Old Testament. In fact, it is said, and it may not be fully true, but it's pretty close, that you can take all their commentaries and all their scripture quotations and recreate the New Testament. That's how extensive they wrote. That's how much, how in-depth their commentary was. So even if we were to lose 
all of our copies of the Bible, if we still had copies of their letters, we could recreate the New Testament from their commentaries. Isn't that cool? That's amazing stuff. So you look at all their commentaries. Were they right about John? None of them comment on that section. None of them comment on it. That's a pretty good point of evidence saying, well, if they didn't comment on it, at least one of them, chances are it wasn't in the early manuscripts. And then he goes on to point out, he says a number of later manuscripts that include the narrative, mark it off with asterisks or obelai, little different marks, indicating hesitation as to its authenticity, while those that do include it display a rather high frequency of textual variance. So in other words, what he's saying is, is all the later New Testament documents that we have copies of that include it in there, the vast majority of them have some kind of mark on it with kind of a footnote saying, eh, we're not sure if it's really supposed to be there or not, but we're going to put it in there. And then you take all of those copies together and you look what they wrote and none of them fully completely line up with the exact wording of the story. There's variations of the story all between them. So there is no one single consensus in those manuscripts that do include it. And so just that, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Like I said, there, there's a lot more evidence that I could throw in here, but I don't want today to be just about this topic of textual criticism. I, I actually do want to do a series of lessons on it to share with you all. And I may even just do it as a video thing that you all can watch on your own time. But I wanted to share with you, though, some of the highlights. So you got this idea that, you know what, this isn't strange to see in the copy of our Bible. And that it's okay, because quite honestly, by them telling us that this portion of Scripture really isn't in the earliest manuscripts, we have a better idea of the truth of how we got the New Testament. It, it really is showing God's amazing work. And, and I want to share a little bit of my thoughts on it. First and foremost, if you're in John, are you in John? Go over to uh, 21. 21. Yep, John chapter 21. Well, there. John chapter 21. All right, look at verse 25. Look what it says. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that could be, or that would be written. So John's telling us that there's a lot of stories out there about what Jesus did that aren't written down. And that's one of the reasons why I believe that even though it doesn't belong in John, I still think it is an event that happened. In the time of Jesus. And so to me, it's there in our Bibles. Um, it gives us a chance to talk about this subject of the New Testament scriptures and, and how we got it. And I'll, I'll talk just a little bit more on that. But um, it's there. So we might as well take a look at it and, and see what we can learn from it. And, and as I mentioned earlier, I'm more along the lines of how D.A. Carson was saying. I'm that middle ground. Uh, I, I believe it doesn't belong in John. I think everything, when you look at it, states that it really shouldn't be where it's at. Um, but I'm not going to ignore it either. I do believe it was an actual story uh, that we have. And it's in our copy. And, and I'm thankful for the ESV publishers to have put it in there. Um, I know the NIV I have doesn't have it in the main body. It has it as a footnote, and it's a lot harder for me to read the little lettering in the footnotes than it is right here. So I'm happy uh, for them. Um, so he didn't write it? No. No, in fact, um, I personally think it's a story that belongs in Luke. And I'll, we're going to actually, when we start looking at the passage, we're going to look at that. Um, 
I, I really believe uh, it's more of a style that Luke writes in. Uh, there's a portion of Luke that we're going to look at uh, that it actually fits better than it does in John. And like I said, when we get there, I'll explain that a little bit more. I just wanted to share a couple more quotes from D.A. Carson. He says, even if it is deemed authentic, it's not characteristic of John's writing and is more in common with Luke. I, I really line up with what he's writing there. It has his style. Um, the words, a lot of the Greek words in that passage, you don't really find in John, but you find a lot in Luke. <clears throat> so that's why it leans more um, towards his, his gospel. Uh, D.A. Carson goes on to go on to write, he writes, on the other hand, there is little reason for doubting that the event here described occurred, even if it's in its written form, it did not in the beginning belong to the canonical books. In other words, he's basically saying what I said. I, I personally believe that it is a true story and we need to study it since it's here, even though it may not have been in the original uh, books, the autographs. So, um, Hey, everybody's got to make up their own mind. I leave it up to you all to uh, make up your mind about the subject. Uh, I leave it to anybody listening uh, in our podcast to make up their mind about it. And I would be more than happy to go in further uh, about it at any point in time. Um, the one thing that I would say, though, about this subject, um, and the thing that we have to understand, one of the arguments before I end up this thing with textual criticism is, is one of the arguments I hear is this, this, there's this idea that the Bible that we have was like this golden book that floated down from heaven to us. And, and, and that's how, like it's some sacred thing that you have to believe this certain way of, about it. And, and here's the interesting thing to me. If God intended for this to be at the end of John, could he have made sure that without a doubt we would know and it wouldn't be an issue, there wouldn't be a controversy? But he didn't. Do you think he could have had one perfect book that survived throughout all eternity to this day? Sure, what do you think we would have done with it? What do we do with things that are said to come directly from God? Too hard. We worship it. We worship it. It's interesting. Um, Israel had an issue in the wilderness where they kept, you know, getting mad at God. <laughs> they had that little issue. And so one of the issues, snakes were sent into the camp. And anybody bitten died. And they screamed, oh, we messed up. Sorry, God. Uh, help us. Save us. So God told Moses, make a brazen serpent. Rise it up on a pole in the middle of the camp. And anybody who looks on it, if they're bitten, will be saved. Jesus then uses that to point that that's pointing to him in the cross. But it's interesting, we read in the Old Testament later on what happens with some of the later kings because the people started worshiping idols again. That one of the kings, when he was restoring Israel to God, do you know what he did? He destroyed the brazen serpent. Why? Because they were worshiping it. Which was not meant for them to do. So, listen. Does God preserve his word that we have today? Absolutely. How do you do it? Through over 5,000 different copies that were copied by human hands over centuries. That's how we preserved it. Because God has always worked through people. So this whole idea that there is only one holy, righteous set of documents that we have is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's the whole collection of New Testament documents. And, and it is the role and the job that the textual critics have taken on hand to do the scholarship work, to learn the languages, to learn the study, and to invest in time. And there's not just one or two people doing this. There's hundreds who get together and collaborate on these issues to find out the best 
collection of the New Testament Greek that we have. And from that, we get our translations. And we can trust them, and, and we can accept them as God's inspired truth. That, to me, is more precious than, than God just putting his holy hand, the golden shine, on one particular thing. Because anybody who follows that route, I find you listen to how they talk about that particular Greek document, and they're really worshiping the Greek document. They're using that type of language. They don't even realize what they're saying. And, and so as a result, my challenge to everyone is to make up your minds based on prayer, evidence, and research, not emotion or personal sensibilities. God gave us a brain to use and, and, and to apply to everything that we do. And so it's a big subject. It's a great subject. I love, I am a textual criticism nerd because it's amazing and awesome, all of the ins and outs and how the, the documents came to be in the different translations. We think about how many of them had to, had to copy on the run and, and because they were being persecuted and hunted down and uh, the forces were trying to burn scriptures and de destroy it and, and all sorts of things. And I don't know if anybody's ever had to copy a document on the run. You know, I remember in high school, you know, the bell's almost ringing and copying something because I forgot an assignment, you know, and and then I look afterwards and I like wrote one of the sentences twice and all of it, it happens, right? And that's the kind of thing that we have. What's really cool is when you look at all 5,000 documents, and a lot of them are out there. You can go search on the internet and, and see photo, photos of the actual documents and zoom in and whatnot. Anyways, it's cool stuff. Um, with all those 5,000 documents, you know, with all of those type of mistakes and error, not one of them affects any type of doctrinal belief. Not one doctrine is removed. Not one doctrine is misapplied or anything. There's misspelled words. There's missing words. There's verses that have been double copied. There's passages that were added in sections because the scribe liked it. You know, for whatever reason, there's a lot of these different things. And so it, it really is. It's a cool, fun study. So with that all being said, any questions? Everything's kind of cool? Anybody have any wonder or thought or anything? All right. Well, let's do this. Let's take a look at this passage that doesn't really belong in John, but it's here and it is a really awesome story and we can get some great uh, truth and principles for us today. I'm going to go ahead and read it all and then we're going to go through section by section. Um, let's get a little bit of the, the context, the end of chapter 7 here. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, the Pharisees, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Kind of a weird transition in a way. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. That's a cool story. It's awesome. 
but as we see, more than likely doesn't belong in John. But but what are we getting at here? Hey guys. So look at uh, seven fifty three to eight two. It says they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Now, I kind of mentioned as I was reading it, it's kind of a weird, abrupt transition, right? We get this encounter with Nicodemus, and then the rest of his Pharisees are kind of making fun of him and whatnot. And then all of a sudden, they each went to his own house. It's like, what, are you a Galilean too? What's going on? Yeah, and it seems kind of weird, and it doesn't make sense. So there's an abruptness to it. But what is interesting, if, if you read through the synoptics, the Synoptic gospel, Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those have more of a tendency to have abruptness to their narrative, especially Mark, because Mark is like a, a bullet shot through the gospel. It's like boom, 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 boom. He, he's just trying to get at really key specific type things. And so as we're looking at John, there's more of a, a smoother transition through the gospel of, of John. So we see right here in this part of the passage, there's an abruptness to it. And, and, and so that just doesn't really lends itself to John. Um, one other side point before we get into what the passage is talking about. Hold your place here in, in John 7, because we're going to do some flipping back and forth. And go to Luke 21. Luke chapter 21. As I pull my finger away from John, there we go. Now, Luke 21, verses 37 through 38, there's a lot of the old manuscripts that actually place this story at the end of this chapter. And, and there's some strong similarities to the intro into this story. So look at um, 21, and we'll start in verse 34. But watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now look at verses 37 and 38. This is where a lot of those manuscripts place this story. It says, and every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet, the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now go back to John 7. Look at verse 53. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting symbol. Did you hear that? Yeah. Back in Luke, and every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the Mount of Olivet, and early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. And then as you read, it fits really more at the end of Luke. So that's kind of an interesting kind of thing. Now, go back to John chapter 7. Now remember, John chapter 7 was taking place during what? Feast of Booths. Right, the Feast of Booths. Where, what were the two things we said were symbolic figures of the of Booths? Because it was the symbolic of God taking care of them in the wilderness, and then how did he lead them in the wilderness? Fire. Fire, Fire by night, smoke by day. So light was, was very symbolic during the Feast of Booths because that was the honoring feast of the time of the wilderness. So the end of chapter 7 here, it's still the Feast of Booths. He's had the, his encounter with, with the Pharisees. Now look at uh, John eight twelve. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am what? Light of the world. We're still at the Feast of Booths. So it really, it really does lend itself that John actually goes from 52 to 8, 12. 
Um, so that's just a kind of side little thing with where we're, we're at. So here we go. Let's look at this story, even though it's kind of displaced. Let's look at the story. So they each went to their own house. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And so early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. I'm going to see if I can override here and boost to your TV. Can I do that? You should be able to. Let me... You want me to stop this one? Let me see if it'll automatically do it. All right, I did it. So, that ain't gonna work. Let's try this one. So I just wanted to share cool little visuals here just to get let you guys see. So I got Jerusalem. Here's the city, Jerusalem. And, and the center point of the city of Jerusalem, not the center of the city, but the center point, of course, is the temple. And so Jesus will go out to the Mount of Olives. And this is known as the Kidron Valley. Right? You see this right here? This is the Sheep Gate. There's the pool. Right? That we he healed the, the one guy that we talked about a couple chapters ago. And, and so all the action here, a piece of booze was happening around the gate. And then he would go out to the Mount of Olives. And just to add some fun to it. <clears throat> here you are in Jerusalem over here looking out across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives. That's the Mount of Olives right there. Pretty cool, isn't it? And then another view is this is from the Mount of Olives. And what's at the center of the picture? Mosque. Right, the mosque, the Dome of the Rock. Where's the Dome of the Rock sit? No. Where's the Dome of the Rock sit? That mosque. Oh. What's it sitting on? Anybody know? Uh, That's the Temple Mount. So from the peak of the Mount of Olives, you can look down into Jerusalem and see the temple. And talk about in Jesus' day. So just cool little visual. I'll kind of keep that there. So the Mount of Olives, That's he would... a long way to walk. Eh, not too bad. I mean, it's a nice little walk. Every night. Yeah. But you got to think about it. They're a walking culture. Yeah. You know, we'd go 10 feet out of the temple and we'd need a break. <laughs> so he would go out to the Mount of Olives. <clears throat> and one of the cool things about the uh, Mount of Olives is that um, it was higher than the temple I mentioned. So it kind of formed this barrier between Jerusalem and the wilderness to the east, but it kind of formed this cool like horizon line because it blocked out anything that was behind it. So you would get the sun rising up over this mountain peak into, into uh, Jerusalem. So it, it was a very you know, important uh, site in, in Jerusalem at the time. Uh, you can kind of see from the picture the impact that it would have just visually. Um, it, was, it was cultivated with olive groves and different things all along. Um, just this picture, those listening to the audio obviously can't see it, but if we go to the right, right up off the screen, that's where the Garden of Gethsemane is. It's, it's kind of on the northern spot of the Mount of Olives. So one of the things from this map, as you can see, this, this is a hotbed of Jesus' mission that, that's happening here. The Mount of Olives, Garden of Gethsemane, all of these things are all significant, not just to the Jews, but then to, to us and the gospel. So, so here we go. He went out each night to the Mount of Olives. What do you think he was doing there on the Mount of Olives? More than likely praying, because that's typically what... Yeah. He would do so early in the morning then. He would come down to the temple and, and he would gather with the people and the people would gather around him and would uh, teach them. And that was very common. Many of the rabbis taught people on the, the temple grounds. Um, 
I'll go ahead and remove that distraction. Um, don't need my news updates. But um, so Jesus was basically doing um, what was expected of a rabbi. And the people would come, and, and we even saw in the Gospel of John that he would do this. And so look at verses 3 through 6. It says, while he's doing this, while he's sitting there, gathering with the people around him, teaching, the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. So they come barging in. All right, now picture this. Jesus is teaching. They come barging into these people, come right up to Jesus, and in the midst, bring this woman and say to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. <coughs> now in the law... Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And they said, they, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And so then Jesus, right in the midst, he just bends down and starts writing on the ground, which we're going to see is really cool stuff. So let's take a look at this. They bring this woman in, what they charge her with? Adultery. All right, so here's this woman confronting or with the scribes who are confronting Jesus uh, with the law's view on adultery. So what is the law's view on adultery? If you go to Leviticus 20.10, or you can just listen, I'll read it. It gives us the basic overall idea of what the law says about adultery. It says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, and essentially what we learn is anyone, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Uh, Deuteronomy 22, 22, it says, if a, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. So there we go. What's the law say? What's the law say? Both have to be. Right. If there's adultery, the man and the woman are both to be dealt with. Now listen to this. Listen to both of these. Leviticus 20.10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor. Deuteronomy 22.22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man. Who's the emphasis put on? The man. Doesn't say if a woman is found. Right. It says if a man is found lying. Who's brought before Jesus? Right. Interesting. The man's the emphasis. Both parties are to be stoned. And, and here's another interesting thing. Uh, listen to Deuteronomy 17.6. On the evidence of two witnesses, or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person should not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Right? So any death penalty could only be lawfully carried out by what? You had to have two or three witnesses. Two or three witnesses, at least. If you only had one witness, forget it. Right? So when it comes to adultery, the emphasis is put on the man. Both the man and the woman are to be stoned, and they can only be put to death by two or three witnesses. Now, here's what's interesting about this situation. Are, are, are the Pharisees and scribes concerned about the law being carried out here? Why are they doing what is What does the verse say? Why are they doing this? Right. They did all this to trick them. So is there a concern carrying out the law? No. No. Their concern is we've got something that we can use to try and trip up Jesus. This whole thing is they're trying to test Jesus. They're not actually trying to seek justice for a wrongdoing. That can be clearly seen in the fact that the man is not present or the man is present. Or maybe several of them are present. Exactly. It could be. This whole position, this whole situation is about trying to discredit Jesus and give them a reason to arrest him. They're getting desperate now. And, and at the heart of this situation is the desire of the scribes and Pharisees to push Jesus' buttons and hope that he messes up. What they're, what they're expecting is him of them walking in, interrupting Jesus, saying, we've caught this woman in adultery. The law says that she should be stoned. What do you say? 
And they're expecting Jesus to be upset because he was interrupted and, and fly at them. Just knee-jerk reaction. You know? Um, one of the things that's interesting, too, I was doing some searching around and, and was finding several things that said that this law was not very popular. And there really is not a lot of evidence from first century Israel that it was ever carried out. Was the line of uh, David might have not exist? Yeah, might not exactly. If you look at um, Judah. Yeah. Played with Laid. his daughter-in-law. Exactly. To yield. Exactly. And and so so you've got a law that's not the most popular thing, but who's really popular right now? Paris. Jesus is popular. People are flocking, right? right? And, and so um, you got this unpopular law. They interrupt Jesus, hoping to get them all riled up. And, and so what's the goal? What's, what's their goal? If he condemns the woman, he's going to, number one, be promoting an unpopular law with the people, possibly lose some face, right? Because here's this guy talking about bringing in the kingdom and God's love and healing and all this. And now all of a sudden he has a woman... Stone, so he may lose some face, not to mention he'd be not following the law because it calls for the man and the woman to be stoned. If he dismisses the woman, he'd be breaking the law and not condoning sin. So they're like, ooh, we got Jesus caught in a double whammy. So they interrupt him. He's teaching his people. They're eager to learn. In comes this group of guys. And they, what do you say? What does he do? He just looks at him for a second, bends down, and starts doodling in the sand. It's like he totally ignores them all together. Jesus' first response is say nothing, bends down, and write in the sand. Now the big question is, what did he write? I don't know. You want to know what he wrote? We have absolutely no idea. And quite honestly... I don't think the Bible writer wanted us to know. Therefore, I don't think God wanted us to know. I don't think it's pertinent to the story at all. You now, there's a, people watching think, watch this. Yeah, he could be doing tic-tac-toe for all we know. You know, and there's a lot of theories out there, and a lot of smart guys make these like intellectual reaches out into nothingness. But at the end, it's all conjecture. It's all. Conjecture and chasing conjecture can only send you down just roads you don't want to go down because then you start believing things that really aren't there and and I don't think that's the point because look at look at verses seven through um, seven through eight he goes on and says and as they continue to ask him what are they doing he's down writing in the sand what are they doing come on Jesus what do you say what are you doing Jesus why aren't you answering what do you say about this? They're getting agitated, right? They're, they're impatient, right? So as they continue to ask him, as they're rattling on, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he goes back down and starts writing on the ground again. Now, there's a lot of light and fluffy stuff out there about the statement that Jesus make, made. And, and it gets used a lot as in, see, we're not supposed to judge anyone. Who's going to be the first, you know, to judge, da, 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 da. And that's not what he's getting at. This is what's interesting. He's dealing a master stroke here. The, the initial response of Jesus, it accomplished, first of all, one thing. It off-balanced the, the scribes and the Pharisees because he got them all agitated. It now threw the emphasis off of Jesus and back onto them because they're acting the fools. And, and that's what people are seeing. And, and we can see that. Why? Because it says continuing to ask him. And, and so they're hoping for this knee-jerk reaction, but he keeps calm and focused in what he's doing. And then he stands up and he's not giving some, you know, great warm and fuzzy type non-judgmental statement. He's actually giving them a lawful response. He's holding them to the law. This is kind of cool. 
Deuteronomy 17, 6 through 7. This is brilliant. Deuteronomy 17, verses 6 through 7 says, On the evidence of two witnesses, or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Here's verse 7. The hand of the witnesses, the hand of the witnesses, shall be first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So if you're going to witness against someone, you had to be the first to throw the stone. And in other words, if you're going to falsely accuse someone, you're going to lead the charge in taking their life unlawfully. Think about that. But even if they were guilty, you're going to be the one to, to bring their death sentence. You can't just say, okay, guards, kill them, and you walk away and go about your time. No, you've got to pick up the stone and be one of the first ones to look them in the eye and lead to their death. That's a, that's a serious, serious charge. Now, have we already established, was this process legal according to the law or illegal according to the law? What they're doing. In adultery, according to the law, who's supposed to be stoned? The man and the woman. Is this situation legal based upon the law? Right. So they're wanting this woman dead. They're wanting him to make a judgment. So he says, all right, what is his response? Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. In other words, he's saying she's guilty. Go ahead and kill her. But who's going to do, who's going to, the witness, who's going to lead the way? He's the one who has no sin. Go for it. I'm giving you approval to do it. But do it based on righteousness. This is essentially what he's saying. He deals a master stroke to him. Well, here's the thing. Witnesses of a particular crime must be the first to throw stones. They must be either eyewitnesses or the ones that have the proof that they're bringing. So all of these peoples were supposed to be eyewitnesses to the event. So where's the guy? It's very possible the guy was in the crowd with them. Right? Now think about this. The witnesses must not also be guilty of that particular crime. So in other words, you could be one of the people in the adulterous act trying to get the other person killed. Right? So if I was committing adultery, I couldn't be the one who was the witness against the woman. Okay? Um, he's not saying there that any of you who have absolutely no sin, you're the only ones who can stone. But what did Jesus say is, is akin with adultery? Looking at a woman with lust. It's from Matthew. You know, uh, which one of you hadn't found yourself in a situation there? You weren't guilty of something, right? Could be that the man who the guilty party was in that crowd. And Jesus is focusing in on that situation. And, and listen, it was very common in society for the man to, to miss punishment and actually be one of the witnesses against the woman being stoned. And as a result, the whole culture is guilty of that. It, it's a, it's a, in one stroke, Jesus upholds the law and struck at the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. It was amazing. It was brilliant. Verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And so basically, the response of the Pharisees and scribes is a testament to their own shame and guilt, their own personal shame and, and guilt. Uh, it's interesting, some of the, the um, translations 
have the phrase in there, being convicted by their own conscience. They all left one and their own. Typically, those that are based off of the Textus Receptus have that phrase. Um, but even without it, you still see the context of, of why they left. It's, it's their own conscience getting the best of them. And so at the end of it all, Jesus was now left alone with the adulterous woman. And there was no one here to legally accuse her except who? No, you need two witnesses at least. No. What have we learned about Jesus being in the witness of Jesus up to this point? A couple chapters ago, right, he was stating his case of being the Messiah. Why? There was two witnesses. Himself and who? Himself. Well, who else? There's always Jesus and the Father. Two witnesses. There's no one left to condemn this woman except the two holiest, righteous ones around that could condemn and judge. Look at verses 10 and 11. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one. What does she call him? Lord. No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Does he have the right to condemn her? Yeah. Because he's him and the Father. Of two people that can see into the heart of someone, it's God the Father and God the Son. So they could condemn. But we see in his grace and his mercy and his love, he offers forgiveness. Listen, does he condone her sin? What's his last statement here? Right, go, and from now on, sin no more. Sin no more. This is the gospel in all its power. Jesus and the Father represent the only two witnesses that could truly condemn the woman, and yet Jesus offers her grace. All right, John 3, 16, 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through them. It's almost the ultimate description and definition of criticism. Yeah. Here's where it's wrong, don't do it again. Don't do it again. Absolutely. Here's where the problem is. Right. Now that you know, don't continue. Don't produce it. Exactly. Don't show it again. And, and that's the thing with the gospel is, is God's forgiveness is not an excuse to sin, right? It's an opportunity for holiness and righteousness and purity. It's right. It's that change of direction, right? A natural response to God's forgiveness is purity of heart and purpose, is to now go out and, and don't, don't do that anymore. Don't do that. So let me wrap this up. And just a nice little little bow on the on the package. Regardless of, of the textual criticism of this passage, I think we can learn some great practical truth from this. Um, and, and I think there's three things. Number one, sin is not to be taken lightly. We can't. Hey guys, sin is not to be taken lightly. You want to sit right here? We, no, the, sin is not to be taken lightly. In other words, we, we need to look at the struggles we have in our life. And we need, we need to seek God in, in those situations. And that's why he created the body of Christ. We're to help each other overcome those struggles. And so don't take it lightly. Don't hide it under a rug. You know, seek to overcome them. Two, don't rush to condemnation of ourselves or others. We have a tendency sometimes to look at our sin and then we beat ourselves up. Or we look at other people and we go, oh, at least we're not like that. Oh, why are they doing that? That's not holy. You know, and, and, and don't rush to condemnation. Jesus didn't rush to condemnation. 
He, he came to bring peace and forgiveness and salvation. So don't rush to condemnation. Find the areas where maybe you are being hypercritical. Maybe that whatever he was doing in the sand is similar to if we have a situation like that and in order to not just blurt out angrily, it's our count of ten. Sure. I was going to say it could be. It could be. It could very well be. And that we should is we need to take stock. It's equivalent to what Jesus says about, you know, before you worry about the speck in your brother's eye, you need to take the plank out of your own. It's the whole idea. Before I start passing judgment on someone, it's not that you don't ever judge anyone. That's ridiculous. That's, that's idiotic because we judge people and things all the time. There's no way you could get anything done effectively at work or in school or anything without some kind of judgment. But don't rush to it. And then the third thing is, is always remember, Jesus seeks to forgive and to save. And when we deal with a sinful world, we need to remember that Jesus seeks to forgive and to save. When we deal with our own sin issue, Jesus seeks to forgive and to save. And so this week, reflect on this story and look at it from the different viewpoints. Look at the scribes and the Pharisees and see where maybe you find yourself in that group. Place yourself in the role of the woman and, and see if you find yourself even there at times. And, and really reflect on this from the different viewpoints and see how it speaks to you. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer.